Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 4 of the Essential X-Lapsed, which means uh, we're up to date on the regular X-Lapsed books, the current year stuff. Uh, we're kind of up to date, I should say. It's just another instance of uh, my uh, discount comic book services folks uh, taking their sweet time getting me the... Uh, the May 2021 books here. So we're going to close out this week with a trio of uh, essential X-Lapsed episodes. Of course, that is uh, so long as I don't get struck by lightning, a bus, or a train in the interim. But uh, today we're taking a look at X-Men number four. Now, this one's kind of special because, uh, well, I mean, it's special for a lot of reasons here, but we're not actually reading this one from the essential uh, Uncanny X-Men volume one. Uh, I'm actually using... A, uh, what are they called? A replica or a fac- facsimile edition, I believe it's what it's called there Where they basically remake the entire book, ads and all Which I really, really like I like that idea I remember when uh, Marvel and DC both announced it I was kind of, uh, you know, eh, you know But I tell you what, they're uh, they're really cool to, uh, to have um, I've only got, you know, a couple of them I do have uh, New Mutants number 98 Because, uh I'm an idiot who passed up the opportunity to get that book for like 10 bucks a few years ago because I thought, nah, I'll find it in a dollar bin. Because, I mean, I've found some crazy, crazy stuff in a dollar bin. So buying the first appearance of Deadpool for 10 bucks felt like a, uh, felt like I was cheating. Uh, cheating on my, uh, you know, quarter bin roots. Uh, and I've kicked myself basically every day since then. So I do have the replica edition of New Mutants 98. I also have this one here, X-Men number four. It's not the first uh, replica book I bought, though. The first replica book I did buy was a replica version of Action Comics number one. I found that in a, uh, a 50 cent or a quarter bin um, at a local record store. And I want to say that it came from like uh, one of those loot boxes or loot crates or whatever they're, whatever they're called. Those things that, you know, you get like a... Like a swath of, uh, you know, comic culture stuff. You'll get a Funko Pop, a keychain, a lanyard, stuff like that. And I found that, uh, and I mean, this is me anecdotal, of course. You find a lot of the comics that are bundled with them in the 50 cent bins because I think the people who buy those things really don't care about the comic. (laughs) They just want the little trinket they can put on their shelf or the thing they can wear around their neck and and make it look like they... uh, they care about comic books. Um, of course, that's not an all-inclusive statement, not a blanket statement, but uh, it's uh, just something I've found from my experience digging in the bins. And, you know, I actually uh, did a long-form review on that issue of Action Comics number one, uh, which, boy, if you've never read Action Comics number one, um, well, you're uh, not missing a whole heck of a lot. Of course, there is that whole, you know, first appearance of Superman, first appearance of Lois, stuff like that, you know, important things, but... Uh, There's also, like, a dozen uh, stories that are really, really boring in that book. Um, I actually did that book as part of a uh, project I was working on over at Chris's on Infinite Earths. Uh, And I I, I would imagine a lot of the folks listening to this, or at least some of the folks listening to this, might not know about uh, what Chris's on Infinite Earths was. And it was uh, a—and it still is a site, of course, but— it started off as a uh, DC Comics site, DC Comics review site, every single day reviewing a different DC comic. And uh, around the time that Action Comics number 1000 was coming out, I decided to do a little project wherein I did reviews of 100 issues of Action Comics. I did the Action Comics 100. 
with the final review hitting on April 18th, 2018, the 80th anniversary of Action Comics number one, and also the day that Action Comics 1000 came out. And the book I chose for that was this replica version of Action Comics number one, and I swear it took me eight hours to write this thing. <laughs> there were like six billion pages in this thing, and it was so, so dry. So if anybody wants to see that review, um, it's at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You'll be able to find it there. And I think at this point, I'm close to, probably closer to 200 Action Comics reviews there than 100, because we did do the whole Action Comics Weekly thing. Spent, boy, uh, almost the entirety of 2019 reviewing every single story, good, bad, ugly, and different, of uh, Action Comics Weekly. It was a, a fun little project. Uh not entirely uh, rewarding, <laughs> but uh, I guess it was personally rewarding. Uh, it's just that at the end of the day, I was the only one that cared. But uh, that pretty much sums up most of the things that I do. Anyway, I just took the scenic route to say this X-Men issue was a uh, replica or facsimile version. <laughs> so let's get into it here. X-Men number four, March 1964, cover date, stories called The Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Written and edited by Stan Lee with pencils by Jack Kirby. Inks, Paul Reinman, Letters, Art Simek. Colors, well, wouldn't you like to know? I know I would like to know, but uh, whoever it is didn't get a credit. Um, cover price, 12 cents. Now, uh, this, is, this one has a fairly iconic cover, and we could talk about the coloring errors on it, but uh, I think that's well-trodden at this point, so we, uh, we won't. Let's just get into it. Now, you'll never, ever in a million years be able to guess what sort of scene our story opens with. Now, you might be saying to yourself, Chris, you handsome devil, of course we know that this issue will be starting with four or so pages of the X-Men training in the Danger Room, just like every other issue. And if you did say that, um, well, yeah, disregard what I said just a little bit ago, and I'm sorry for doubting you. First up, it's Beast, and he does that thing where he acrobatically dodges obstacles and more or less bounces around. Everything looks to be going great for old Henry here until he goes to grab for something that he thinks is a rope. Turns out that it was just a uh, camouflage strip of paper. Um, okay, I guess we'll allow it. Um, now, whatever the case, Hank drops into the pool, which ends his session. Cyclops commends him on surviving for a full 60 seconds, though Hank is still a bit down on himself for getting cocky and careless. Next up, it's Bobby who, despite the fact that he's only 16 years old, also manages to do decently well going through his paces. Uh, it's certainly a bit dicier than Hank's outing. First, we see Bobby manifest an ice slide here, perhaps for the first time. Here's the thing, though. It's a little bit different. He's literally sliding on it as he goes, like on his butt, like he's going down an actual slide. I think that's a neat touch that I didn't even realize was a thing. Usually we see him there standing, you know, and gliding along. Now, his ice slide gets shattered by a... Uh, Kerbox, which is to say a box of Kirby stuffs drawn by Jack Kirby that looks very Kirby-ish. He is then dropped on a red-hot cauldron, which looks like a giant pot of chili with a fan on top of it. Now, Bobby manages to create an ice rod with which he pole vaults himself out of danger. Beast then throws a 75-pound anvil at our boy, which... I mean, first of all, 75-pound anvil? Is that even worth an anvil? That's not very heavy at all. Uh, maybe I'm just used to seeing the coyote have like one ton anvils dropped on him. I don't know. 
Anyway, Bobby is able to react quickly enough to create another ice slide, which catches the anvil, and then ships it around his back and slips it right back Hank's way. Just when it looks like Bobby's aced his outing, he is sprayed with hot steam. Now, this renders him back in his tidy whiteies, or I guess tidy yellows. I can actually tell the color here, because as mentioned 700 times, I'm looking at the facsimile edition. Warren then swoops in to hang Bobby from a piece of Kirby stuffs high up on the wall. Well, I guess maybe we can consider this payback for all of uh, Bobby's training shenanigans over the past few issues, or maybe Warren's just kind of an ass. Uh, Whatever the case, this allows Jean to flex her mental muscle and slowly and gently lower Bobby to the ground using her telekinesis. Now, the professor is quite proud of her for doing so, despite the fact that we've seen her do far more impressive things to this point. Xavier then asks Jean to focus her TK abilities to unlid a large red box that has probably been sitting out for the entire duration of this training session. Inside the box is a large cake, which for some reason has 28 candles on it. Charles tells the team that this is their one-year anniversary. So it's been a whole in-story year since X-Men number one. Um, I tell you, the sliding timescale works in mysterious ways, doesn't it? Anyway, they all sit down and stuff their faces on this cake that has been sitting out for quite a while. Now, Scott slices the cake using his optic beams. Bobby still hasn't put a shirt on, and uh, poor Hank must be watching his figure because he's not shown eating any of it. From here, we shift scenes to another crowded table full of mutant... Well, a pair of mutants, and a pair of folks we long thought were mutants. This is the first appearance of Quicksilver... The Pretender, Toad, and Mastermind. Now, Toad is acting a slob, stuffing his face with what looks like clumps of candle wax. And, uh, well, there is a candle in the middle of this table, and it is quite a thing to look at. Uh, It's like no other candle I've ever seen. It kind of just looks like a flaming lump. Um, Kirby must have been tired. Uh, He was drawing 7,000 books at this point. I will give the Brotherhood a bit of credit, though. Uh, You know, little touches like eating by candlelight, That adds quite a bit of romance to the proceedings, does it not? I mean, A for effort. Anyway, Pietro tells Toad to show a bit of decorum because his sister is present. Mastermind then decides to make Toad look like a pig, since, well, he's eating like one, I guess. Uh, Toad brushes this all off uh, because he knows that Mastermind is just an illusionist. Wanda demands that Mastermind stop because she finds his tricks to be even worse than Toad's table manners. Um, the point we're trying to get across here is that this crew doesn't get along. Okay, you see? That's that's the gimmick here. Mastermind decides to praise Wanda's moxie and tells her that, uh, well, he wouldn't mind mating with her. She then points at him, which causes a pitcher of water to spill everywhere because uh, Hex powers in action, of course. And this is probably where I should point out that the scene didn't age well. But I won't because that would basically be all I would be doing here because not much of this aged well, of course. Anyway, a soaked, lapped mastermind stands up and threatens to drive Wanda mad with an illusion, to which Quicksilver speeds over from, like, three feet away and punches Wingard in the mush. Well, we don't know he's Wingard yet, but I will be probably using those names interchangeably. Toad is just loving this. He wants everyone to fight. Now, he also wants to be rid of the Maximoffs, so it'll only be he and Mastermind working for, quote, the leader. As in their leader, not, you know, Samuel Stearns. Uh, Our baddies then all stop to talk about the leader, who they don't actually name, despite the fact that the cover explicitly touts the return of the dreaded Magneto, 
And also how, you know, the very next panel shows him. Oh, well, I mean, I mean, you got to build tension somehow, right? From here, we shift scenes over to the offices of a large naval shipping line where a couple of office schlubs are preparing to auction off a retired freighter. A freighter that still has its cannons installed on it. Huh. I mean, you would think the first thing you might do with a freighter you're about to auction off is maybe, I don't know, disarm it. Anyway, Magneto enters the office like he does. He, he seems to just, like, go into offices uh, so far. And he informs the geeks that the freighter now belongs to him. Uh, why he would have to wait for a freighter to be retired and why he didn't just steal one before now? I don't know. Uh, maybe Magneto didn't want to run into a whole lot of red tape. You, you, know how, uh, you know how these things go. Whatever the case, he wraps the fellows in a band of magnetic hoozy what's it and heads out to the dock to take the freighter. And he actually drives it back, rather than just magneting it there. Now here is a wild dink for you. It's a sign that we are in a very, very small world here. Angel just so happens to be flying overhead on a, quote, routine long-range flight test. And he sees the freighter taking off at top speed. He swoops down to get a closer look and figures, eh, maybe it's just being piloted by remote control. Magneto, inside the freighter, hears Warren's flapping, but just figures it's a seagull. That's kind of cold. Warren then returns home to the mansion, where Professor X takes his vitals. Worth noting, when he arrives, it's just Charles and Jean in the room, uh, which, after the Professor's confession last issue, is maybe a little bit off-putting, is it not? Uh, Angel tells Xavier about the weird freighter he saw, which gives the Professor an ominous, ominous, ominous feeling. Let's shift back to the bad guys. Magneto has returned to his lonely, uncharted island in the Atlantic Ocean with his freighter. I gotta ask, is this the first appearance of Island M? Are we in the Bermuda Triangle? Is that considered to be the Atlantic Ocean, or the Caribbean, or Caribbean, or however you say that? Anyway, Toad is ecstatic to see it, and is also quick to rat out the others for their quarreling. Mastermind especially, even though he was just siding with him a minute ago. Oh well. Magneto calls for a team meeting in order to hash things out, but Pietro and Wanda want no part of it. They actually want no part of any of this anymore. Quicksilver informs Magneto that they are out of here. Magneto then reminds them how the witch owes him her life. This leads to a flashback, a brief flashback, of Wanda nearly burned for being a witch somewhere in Europe until Magneto swooped in to save her. Wanda confirms the story and agrees that she will stay put with Magneto long enough to pay him back. Pietro says he will not leave his sister's side, so I guess Mags has them both for the time being. Then we have our team meeting. Magneto informs the Brotherhood that they're going to test out their new toy and attempt to conquer an entire nation. And so we jump ahead just a few days where he's done exactly that. We've got Professor X reading a newspaper. It's uh, the Daily Record Bulletin. It's worth noting, not the Daily Bugle. And the headline reads, Tiny Republic of Santa Marco Shelled by Mystery Naval Craft. He calls out a mental red alert to call the X-Men to order. We see Hank doing smart guy stuff, you know, reading. He's got like a chalkboard in front of him with uh, mathematical equations on it. That's kind of what he does. Uh, Jean is listening to a Dazzler record or something, judging by her dance moves. All right, she's probably doing aerobics. Warren is listening to a boombox, and Bobby is eating a giant milkshake, which, judging from last issue, he likely made from his own body. We don't see Scott, probably because Kirby ran out of panels. 
we join up with our team, Scott and all, in full costume in Professor X's study, and the prof is conked out. Bobby assumes that he's sleeping. <laughs> you know, right after you call a red alert, the next thing you ought to do is probably take a nap, right? Uh, you know, to be 16 years old and so naive. Uh, now, Beast suggests that the prof is in a trance. Cyclops gets a closer look and realizes that Charles is talking in his trance. Turns out that Xavier is on the astral plane, or the mental plane as it's called here, and he's having a chat with Magneto, which is kind of interesting, I guess. Uh, worth noting, perhaps, uh, Xavier is depicted as standing in the astral plane. Might be the first time we ever saw him, you know, upright. Now, he and Magneto have their first debate on what it means to be a mutant here. Magneto wants to destroy and enslave humanity. Xavier wants to save it. Nothing we don't already know, but it's neat to see it for the first time here. Xavier wakes up and he prepares the team for a trip down south. Our scene shifts to Santa Marco, where Mastermind has masterminded a large army of soldiers. They march through the city, informing the Santa Marcans that uh, Magneto is their new ruler. And, well, just like that, he is. And I tell you what, this uh, four-panel scene would take at least eight issues to play out these days, wouldn't it? We jump ahead, quote, a short time. By now, Magneto is firmly in power, and the illusionary army has been replaced with a real one. The evil army all wear M armbands, which, uh, you know, soldiers wearing armbands might evoke a certain evil army in the real world, uh, and one that we wouldn't think Magneto would want to emulate. Anyway, a Rolls-Royce uh, rolls up to the border of Santa Marco. That's a long drive, isn't it? Uh, it's the X-Men, of course, in their civvies. Uh, Xavier introduces them to the guards as his students who are on a goodwill visit from America which is apparently something Magneto is cool with. It's kind of odd. Um, he feels like this will make him appear to be a kindler and fairer ruler, so... Okay, fair play. Meanwhile, he's having a dissident tossed into the dungeon. <sighs> the classics are classics for a reason, though. I mean, the dungeon. That's, uh... Hmm. Then, Magneto gets a uh, weird look on his face. Kind of like his lunch might not have agreed with him or something. Uh, he senses the X-Men. Which, I mean, we know he doesn't have any mental powers, but uh, I suppose we'll allow it. And this isn't the last that we're going to hear about Magneto having some sort of weird mental abilities. Um, we shift over to the X-Men, who look to be staying at, I don't know, a Holiday Inn or something. Xavier draws a picture of Magneto's castle, which is basically just a box with a name on it. Uh, and he runs some plays with his students on how they're going to infiltrate and win the day. We start with Beast, who approaches the castle and, after climbing up a rampart, takes out a pair of army men with a dropkick. He is then bumped off the wall by Toad, who hits him kind of like a billiard ball. Hank manages to grip into the wall as, uh, as not to go splat on the, in the down below. Then Mastermind does his uh, illusion thing, uh, making Hank believe that the wall is made out of smooth glass, and so he slides all the way down, probably really, really rubbing his fingers and uh, maybe chest quite raw. Next, Angel, uh, well, he flies by, drawing a bunch of gunfire from the M-soldiers. He then flies up higher and yanks a high-tension electrical wire off the wall and drops it onto the baddies, very nearly electrocuting them. So much for uh, kill no human, eh? Eh, different times, different eras. What are you gonna do? Um, then Quicksilver rushes into the scene. Uh, Archangel baits old Pietro to running face-first into a wall. So uh, not the most impressive first outing for our speedster, is it? Scarlet Witch then wanders up and points to a support beam or something, causing it to fall on Warren. Next, we know he's been tied up. And 
you know, when you think about old comics, you know, you might like immediately go to Wonder Woman, right? Because she was always bound up. She was always tied up. But I'm pretty sure the X-Men have been tied up in every issue so far. And uh, if I were a betting man, and of course I'm not, I'd suggest that there's no end in sight for that. From here, enter Cyclops. He optic blasts into the room, or wherever Magneto and the gang are. He sends a pair of M-soldiers literally ass over tea kettle, rolling backwards like they're in like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Pietro rushes behind Scott and locks him in a full Nelson. Now this causes Scott's beam to shoot through the ceiling, which drops a whole bunch of electrified Kerbatech to the floor below. Evil and good mutant alike rush away from the one million volts of current. Uh, Cyclops then does that thing where he exhausts himself, blasting the bejesus out of the Kirby tech, uh, sending it through a wall where it can't hurt anyone, and then he faints. Now Iceman climbs inside, unties Angel, and then <sighs> smothers Scott's face in snow. It's a very, very strange-looking scene here. It's uh, kind of the Iceman version of smelling salts, I guess. In any event, this uh, manages to wake Cyclops up. Now, as they run down a hall, they're suddenly attacked by a coat of arms that had been hanging on the wall, so like a shield and some weaponry, stuff like that. Now, you might think this is Magneto, but it's not. It's just Jean thinking that the X-Men were the bad guys, and somehow Angel knows this immediately. Jean's not alone either, Beast is with her, and so uh, the X-Men have been reunited here. Then, a wall of flame rushes towards them, and they run down a hallway to a dead end. So it looks like it's curtains for our kids. But then, Professor X wheels through the flames, because you see, it was just an illusion. Warren kicks himself for being hoodwinked by this trickery. We then rejoin the bad guys, and uh, Magneto has decided it's time to uh, retreat, you know? Which seems a little bit hasty, but what do I know? Now, before the Brotherhood leaves, however, he would like to plant a pair of bombs. One small one, and one nuke. Uh, Now, the small one is set to take out the X-Men in the castle, and then the nuke will wipe out the entirety of Santa Marco. That uh, sure escalated in a hurry, didn't it? Um, Now, back to the X-Men, who are rushing toward the tower chamber where Magneto is hiding out. Uh, Beast goes to lunge for the door. However, Professor X realizes that it's been booby-trapped with the smaller of the two bombs. And so he throws himself out of his wheelchair to take the brunt of the blast himself. You know, rather than just making everyone stop running with his mental powers, which, again, what do I know? Cyclops then blasts through the door, and they see the Brotherhood escaping down a slide or a trash chute or something. Uh, Whatever it is, it looks like a lot of fun, and I wish I had one built into my house. Magneto warns that Santa Marco is about to be blowed up with the nuke. Scarlet Witch feels very bad, very uneasy about the loss of innocent lives here, but feels she has no choice in the matter. Quicksilver runs back up into the tower where he disarms the nuke before leaving. He makes sure to tell the X-Men that he's not on their side, but he won't stand by to see an entire nation be blown off the planet. We wrap up with the X-Men huddled around Professor X. He tells them to leave him behind, forget about him even. Now you see that bomb blast rendered his mental abilities deadened. His greatest weapon, his mind, is now a dud. He has no more powers. Will the X-Men ever be able to move on? Well, we'll find out next time. But for now, let's talk a little bit. I mean, there's not a whole lot to say about this issue, but uh, we should probably talk about it all the same. Starting with, uh, well, sweet, fanciful Moses. Do they fit a lot of story in here? I mean, they they really cram the gram into these, uh, these Silver Age stories. It feels like where we started today 
was several days ago. I mean, there's just so much story here. Uh, definitely a uh, pendulum swing from today's comics to yesterday's comics. I, I do wish we found that happy medium. It seems uh, like the perfect amount of story and the perfect amount of decompression is just uh, a bullseye that it's just uh, kind of hard to hit here. So what are our main takeaways, uh, other than the fact that this uh, this took a long, long time to read and a long, long time to write about? Um, this is the first appearance of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, of course. That is um, probably why there is a facsimile edition of this book. Uh, probably has a lot to do with uh, the Pretender. This is her first appearance, of course, and uh, she is everyone's favorite comic book character at this point. So it stands to reason that uh, her first appearance would get the special facsimile treatment. Now, it's pretty cool that she and Quicksilver are, uh, they're kind of here out of obligation, right? I had forgotten that this was made, like, apparent, even as far back as their very first appearance. It's, like I said, uh, when we started this little uh, side project, it's been, boy, uh, every bit of 20 years since I read these things for the first time, and the last time. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, unclear whether or not there was any sort of moral ambiguity in the Maximoffs, or if they were just, you know, full-blown bad guys at the start here. It's cool to see that they weren't. It's cool to see that uh, they're here only out of obligation, or Wanda's only here out of obligation to Magneto for saving her in Europe, and Pietro is just, uh, you know, very protective of his sister, so he's not going to leave her alone with the rest of these goofballs. Now, speaking of the rest of the goofballs here, uh, Mastermind and Toad, they make their first appearances as well. And I guess, uh, what's-her-face, Astra is probably somewhere behind the scenes here. She'd been retconned into being a founding member of the Brotherhood, uh, though uh, we don't meet her for a very, very long time. But it's a, it's a pretty decent little crew here. Uh, they, uh, You know, when they put together a team like this, you would figure that they would try to do, like, the opposite number of the X-Men, right? I mean, that's kind of just... Silver Age 101, right? You have a, a superhero team, and the villain team is usually just like you have the really strong one who goes against the strong character. You got the the flying one who goes against the flying one. You got the magic one that goes against the magic one. We don't really get that here. Um, of course, there are some similarities here. Toad can bounce around kind of like Beast does, um, and uh, Mastermind has mental powers. Uh, not exactly the same as what Jean does, or especially what she does back in this era with just the telekinesis. But, you know, there I guess there are enough similarities there to maybe, you know, draw a line of uh, comparison there. But uh, whatever the case, I like the fact that they're not just dark mirror versions of the X-Men. I, I think it's more creative this way. It's also a little bit more fun this way. You have goofier characters here where... You know, you got Toad, you know, picking sides here. He's first he hates the Maximoffs because he wants to he wants to show that he's the most loyal to Magneto and figures that well, if the two of them are gone, it's just between him and Mastermind at that point. And then as soon as Magneto shows up, he rats out Mastermind for being a jerk too. So I like that. I like that, you know, Toad is basically a toady. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Other than that, we've got uh, Professor X uh, with his mental powers wiped out from the bomb blast, which I don't see that lasting too terribly long. Uh, one thing I do remember from this era is that Professor X liked to screw with uh, the X-Men a lot, <laughs> like in oddly playful ways, like testing them by tricking them into thinking he was like dead <laughs> or, or depowered. Or I think this is uh, the first time we're seeing that. Uh, so I don't think there's much to worry about in as far as Xavier miraculously getting his powers back. 
the art was fine. It's Kirby. You like it or you don't. So really not much more to harp on about that. I've already talked a lot about my uh, hot and cold feelings on Kirby's work. I won't bore you all with that again. But uh, overall, I mean, this is an important issue. Um, it's also just a, a little bit of a, I hate to use the word slog, but uh, I can't really think of another word to use. This one feels like it takes forever to get through. So unless you have like 45 minutes to sit in silence with this thing, <laughs> it might just be a toughie for you. But uh, still seminal enough to recommend checking it out. Uh, very, very important issue. First appearance is uh, establishing an actual organized threat against the X-Men here. It's a... Uh, you could do far worse, but I think that's all I got to say about this issue. Uh, we do have a couple of letters in the mailbag that have been sitting for a little while now because I uh, I want to keep the letters for this show separate from the main show. As this, you know, despite being like a sister series to the main show, is still very much its own thing. And I feel like uh, it might have... There's definitely overlap in listeners, but I think... I think between this and the rest of the projects I do, this one might actually have its own, you know, uh, group of listeners. So let's get into the mail. We're going to start with our good friend Billy, who's talking about X-Men number three. He says, Brother Chris, another fun episode. Creepy Xavier is only supplanted by Jerk Xavier, and the Silver Age has the latter in spades. Thanks for doing this show and for all your Herculean podcasting and blogging efforts. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I, uh... Do my best to, to keep the content flowing as uh, as best <laughs> that I as I possibly can, and yes, uh, Xavier here is a creep. Uh, <laughs> that's something we talked about a lot during the third episode. Is uh, Xavier thinking about his uh, love and adoration for a teenage Jean Grey, despite the fact that he's probably twice her age, and uh, it puts us on something of a slippery slope discussion-wise, doesn't it? Um, you know, anytime we talk about anyone who has mental powers falling in love with someone else, it, uh, I mean, it's creepier than not, right? Uh, a person who can enter and control minds, well, they could uh, make someone love them, right? They can, he can just as easily go into Gene's mind and be like, hey, you cannot resist me. And, uh, at this point in her uh, training and maturation of her own powers, there's really not a whole lot she could do about it. So I guess um, kudos to Xavier for not doing that. <laughs> kudos to Stan Lee for uh, kind of brushing this one under the carpet, and not to come back until, you know, Onslaught in 30-odd years. But uh, it's it's creepy. It's creepy for sure. But <laughs> thank you so much for uh, for listening and for writing in, Billy. It really, really means a lot. Uh, next, we got Jeremiah talking about the first three issues of X-Men. And he says, Long time no right. I hope you're well and that the move is going well. Well, thank you so much, but uh, we're still in the middle of that move. Uh, we are in month six of the move, which is uh, pretty embarrassing. <laughs> it's kind of where we're at. Uh, Jeremiah continues, Now that I'm vaccinated and restrictions have eased a little, I've been in the car more, which means I'm actually listening to more podcasts. This past Sunday, I was out comic hunting and listened to all three episodes of The Essential X-Lapsed. They were so much fun. I, too, have a fondness for, for The Essentials and Showcase volumes. They were a very affordable way to get those old comics that might otherwise be difficult to obtain. I'm looking at you, Marvel Masterworks. My brother actually gave me that Silver Surfer volume you mentioned as a Christmas gift a long time ago. Oh, that's awesome. The Essentials are just so cool. <laughs> I've got such a soft spot for them. 
And I do remember like uh, the Marvel Masterworks and the DC Archives. Those were on shelves when I first got into comics, or maybe a couple years into my uh, my comic collecting career, and they're not very thick books. You know, that's one thing about the Masterworks and the Archives as well. They're not terribly thick. They're, uh, you know, like a decent size, of course, but nothing nothing huge. And, you know, you look at them and it's like, ah, you know, I, I'll, I'll get to spend 20 bucks on this. And then you turn them around and they're like 50, 60, 70 bucks in, uh, a pop, right? It's crazy, the prices. And for the longest time, that was like your best bet for getting serialized collections of the Silver Age stuff here. I mean, we had books like, uh, you know, Marvel Origins and Sons of Origins, but that would just be a single issue from a series, not really like a whole contextually long run, right? Where you'd get, you know, eight or ten issues of, you know, the first eight or ten issues of X-Men in the Masterworks edition. But again, you're paying 50, 60, 70 bucks for that. I've collected a few of those in more recent times because, uh, I've been hanging out more at uh, used bookstores and uh, record stores that keep, you know, a little trade collection. Sometimes those will pop in there, and sometimes they're cheap. Other times, they're treated like they're gold, right? You go to a half-price books where you used to be able to find things for, you know, half-price, kind of part of the name. Uh, But the ones near me have turned into this weird sort of, like, boutique store where, like, they actually mark things as being out of print, and instead of a book being, say, 50 bucks, like one of these, $50 cover price, it'll be 120 bucks because it's out of print. And it makes you wonder. It's like, then what the hell's the point of a half-price books? <laughs> it's uh, pretty ridiculous. Jeremiah continues, I enjoyed your look at the stories. Going back this far into the Silver Age can be difficult and tedious. Sure, the creators and the characters are all legendary now, but the comics at the time were all brand new. The characters had not been developed to the point where you could pluck one off the proverbial shelf and write a great comic with them. And you're right. You're right here. I think this issue in particular here, we, like I mentioned, it's a a seminally important one, right? We have the first appearances of uh, a lot of characters that have stood the test of time that are still relevant today. But boy, was it tedious, right? It's a, a, you know, again, I hate using the word slog, but... uh, Sometimes it can be with these old Silver Ragers. Jeremiah continues, Due to the nature of the world-building being done, the fact that the comics were published on a bi-monthly or more basis, that they were specifically targeting eight-year-olds, and that every issue had to deliver enough exposition to make each issue enjoyable on its own, the stories have to be looked at through a certain lens, I think. And yes, you're right again. Uh, I I think I mentioned this early uh, in this run here, where it's like, yeah, you know, Stan and Jack didn't think that some, you know, 40-year-old idiot was going to be uh, dissecting these things in, you know, a half a century plus later. And uh, to do so is uh, probably a little bit of a disservice. But uh, looking at this from, you know, I hate to use the word academic because I'm really not. It's just a, just seeing where things started, you know, just revisiting things and basically refreshing myself on this uh, on these Silver Age stories because it's just been way, way, way too long for me uh, between reads here, huh? you know, over 20 years probably. Jeremiah continues, Generally, these, are, these very early issues I find to be boring and silly, but that doesn't mean that they think they should be ignored. Obviously, they are the foundation for everything we've enjoyed about comics for most of our lives. They're highly collectible. It's those reasons I buy facsimile editions. I pulled X-Men number one off my spinner rack on Sunday to read it after listening to your shows. 
It's fun to look back and examine these comics with a 21st century eye. I hope you keep this series up to fill in the gaps for the regular show. And yeah, that's totally uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this. Uh, I mentioned probably in the first episode that I used to be able to, you know, talk about the X-Men kind of chapter and verse, right? I was able to cite things. I just knew all this information like at hand, you know, or off the top of my head. And I've lost it. <laughs> I lost the ability to do so. So I like I like having the ability to do that, even if it means that I'm going to be like seeing things where, where they aren't in the current year stuff. Like, I'm going to probably think that Fred Duncan is there, despite the fact that I don't think we've seen him in 45 years. But uh, I, I just like getting, getting and sharing the context here. I know that a lot of people agree with you that these issues are boring. I'm one of those people who agree with you. These issues can be boring, and they definitely can be silly. And I totally agree that they shouldn't be ignored. So I like having this opportunity in between our regular shows to... You know, just dig into them. Share them with folks that maybe never tried them before. Share them with folks who really don't have any interest in actually going back and trying them because they are a little bit of a slog. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know. I think this is going to be a, 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 fun, a fun little venture for us. Jeremiah closes with, One question. Why the heck does Iceman have boots on, and why are they not covered in snow like the rest of his clothes? He's not naked under there, I hope. Well... We saw that he's in his uh, tidy yellows today. <laughs> we did see he's not nude, but his boots came off like as soon as he, as soon as he like de-iced. It was very strange. I don't know, I don't know what the boot deal is here. Maybe like he ices up and then puts the boots on. I don't know. Maybe we'll see him doing it. Maybe we'll get an explanation. Maybe it's a. Uh, maybe we won't. I don't know. <laughs> Jeremiah says, "Take care, and I'll be listening." P.S. I've been enjoying Generation X lapsed too. I'm looking forward to seeing how it wraps up and what your overall opinion will be. I never got into Generation X personally. At the time, I felt like New Mutants redo with weird characters, but that was just me projecting. Well, you weren't too far off. <laughs> it kind of was. I loved it. I loved it. Um, the, the first run, of course, I'm talking. Uh, the current run, we have one episode left, uh, if you're listening to this in real time. Uh, this weekend, we'll be hitting up Generation X Issue 87, which is the final issue of the post-Marvel Legacy run, and it'll be episode 12 of Generation X Lapse, the final episode, so it's not long before we find out just how it all wraps up here. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to being able to check it off the list here, uh, and for a book that started off really, really unpleasant, <laughs> it uh, it turned out to be something that I... Uh, that I enjoyed more than I thought I would, and I think um, I'm probably going to miss it a lot more than I thought I would. Uh, reading the first two issues of uh, Generation X Volume 2, I was just like, boy, I, you know, what was that, uh, where it's a close-up on, in Arrested Development, there'd be like a close-up on like Job's face, and he's like, I made a terrible mistake. That that was basically my face after recording the first episode of uh, Generation X Lapse. If there was a camera in my room, it would have zoomed in on me, and it would have been like, I made a terrible mistake, I got 11 more of these to do, but... Uh, Around the halfway point, uh, the worm turned for me. I started to uh, get into the characters a bit, uh, really getting into the uh, interpersonal stuff. And overall, I think it's a uh, net positive, which I never thought I would say. But thank you so much for listening to, uh, to Generation X Lapsed, of course, and uh, the show as well. It really, really means a lot. But that's where we're going to leave it for today. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. 
on Instagram at 90sXmen. Uh, you can send an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Now, for all the blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. That's also where you'll find all that Action Comics stuff, if you're uh, interested in seeing uh, some of my thoughts on uh, the DC side of the table. You could head over to 90s X-Men on Facebook. That's our little group. We're having a lot of fun discussions there, including me complaining a lot about uh, spoilers on uh, social media. That's a conversation we're having right this very minute. And uh, if you're interested in taking part, I hope to see you there. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to spread the word and share the show and uh, tell a friend or two and ask them to do the same. It would really, really help the show out and really mean the world to me. Now, with all that said, I'd like to thank you all so much for letting me be part of your day today. And until next time, as always... I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.